Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, the search continues for a new Seattle police chief, but when might we expect a new hire? What is he hiding? That familiar refrain from the former president is coming back to haunt him. Accusations of orgies and cocaine within the halls of Congress and an unusual reaction from party leadership. Plus, both Washington and the world are at the crossroads of politics and sports. But first, it's about that time of year when you see people retiring from public life. Senators, congressmen, state representatives. We've seen a bunch so far, and one of the most important ones is Senator Tim Sheldon, Democrat from Potlatch here in the Washington State Legislature. He's hanging it up after becoming the longest-serving member of the Washington State Legislature. He says it's time to quit. He joins us now on the Northwest Newsline. And, uh, well, first off, we want to thank you for your many years and decades of service, and uh, I have to ask, why now? Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure serving the 35th District over the years, and, uh, uh, I've gotten a little older. Maybe it's time for a younger person to take this role. And uh, we have two grandchildren who are in Olympia close by, and they're a lot more fun than going into Olympia. Uh, I've made 3,000 round trips to Olympia over my career, and it's uh, time to hang up the hang up the gavel, hang up the shoes, spend some time with the kids. I would imagine so. And, and I, I can't imagine that, you know, going to Olympia would be necessarily thrilling compared to uh, spending time with grandchildren, but uh, <laughs> never, right. nevertheless, or any family member for that matter. Uh, what are you most proud of uh, in your time in Olympia? Well, I think I, I uh, have represented my constituents well. People push back at me and say, oh, Sheldon, you're not a Democrat. You don't, whatever you have always battled with them. They've put hundreds of thousands of dollars into me every every two years because I've had other positions, county commissioner as well. So uh, I'm proud that I represented my constituents, that I was an independent voice for the 35th district. Partisan politics are not my uh, favorite subject, and I think my my constituents feel the same way. We need to work together in Olympia and work across the aisle when we have to, and I think I've I'm very proud of my record. Well, I wasn't going to get into that until a little later on in the interview, but since you brought sure. it up, you're you're a, you're a Democrat, but you caucused with the Republicans. Why is that? Well, they caucused with me. No, I'm just I'm teasing you. <laughs> but uh, you know, I was elected as a Democrat in 1990. Um, I was the assistant majority leader in the House of Representatives, and uh, at that time, you made the motions all on the floor. I did that, and then oh, I'd bring up like a, a Hillary Clinton health care bill or something else, and then. Uh, vote against the, the bill. And the Democrats thought that was a little odd. But people in Olympia, uh, the members, are, are very uh, true to their party. You know, they, they feel they stick together. If you're in one caucus, you all have to stick together. I've never felt that way. I am a Democrat. I've always been a Democrat. And uh, I've run for county commissioner for in, as an independent and won. But party label, you know, I've been in the legislature where people have said the bill comes up and they say, how are we on that one? You know, ask the, ask the people sitting next to them, how are we on that one? And I've never done that. I like to uh, go to the floor and make up my mind how I'm going to vote. And people in both caucuses I've served with for at least 30 year, 32 years, mostly in the Democratic caucus, you get one side of the bill in caucus. And uh, I say, well, I'm not going to commit to vote yet. Uh, I want to go out on the floor and hear what the other side has to say, because you can't serve on every committee. So that's part of 
of why I've been in both caucuses. And what about your your values? You say you're still a Democrat, lifelong sure. Democrat. I mean, your values still align with the Democratic Party, or as we've seen with with both the Republicans and the Democrats, well, those those values have been shifting over the last few years. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm a conservative Democrat. President Kennedy was killed when I was 15, 16 years old. That was the biggest event in my young life. I attended the 1964 Democratic Convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, when I was 17 years old. Democrats say, well, why are you a Democrat? Well, I went there and I, I learned a lot about civil rights when Fannie Lou Hamer and the delegates that were truly elected from Mississippi were not seated by the Democrats. I learned a lot. I've met uh, some tremendous leaders over my life. You know, I've worked for uh, Indian tribes for 18 years, lived out in Tohova, I've met uh, Joe Delacruz, worked for the Muckleshoot tribe, buying land for the casino. I worked for the Squaxin Island tribe. I worked for many tribes. And the riches you, you, you have in your later life are the people that you've met and known. And I agree that both parties have, have changed over the years, but I, I like to put that aside in my job as a, as a uh, state senator. My job is to represent the 35th district and the state of Washington, but parties have their own world. And I, I was very useful, I think, with several other senators in, in getting the uh, top two primary before the people as a referendum, and uh, it passed. It was challenged by both parties. I went to the United States Supreme Court uh, hearing. Rob McKenna was attorney general. He represented the state. Both parties participated. They thought they won. A couple months later, seven to two decisions that the top two primary is legal in Washington state. So now you can have two Democrats on the ballot or two Republicans on the ballot in the general election. And that happens often. Uh, like I say, I've had Democrats run against me more times than Republicans. So what in- inspired your calling to public service? You know, a lot of feelings to give back to my community. My grandfather came to America in 1903 from Sweden. Grandmother came. They worked hard. My dad was in the timber industry all his life, worked hard. I like to see things improve. I, I like to help people. What are you going to miss most about not serving in the legislature? The people. You know, there's a lot of dedicated people in Olympia. The people that work there are tremendous. Uh, because I'm a senior member, I park in the garage under the building. You know, the guys that are and gals that are taking care of that wonderful institution care for it tremendously. And we don't put enough money into taking care of that symbol of of the state of Washington. 95 years ago, the representatives and senators walked out up from the old sandstone building down in Olympia into that beautiful capital. And, uh, you know, I've had a lot to do with shining it up, which we should do. Take care of it. What, what do you make of politics now? You're getting out at a particularly challenging time where, you know, there's always been partisanship in the United States, but people sure. have really kind of dug into their values and, and, and the parties that they belong to. And compromise really isn't the job of statesmen anymore. No, we don't have those kind of people in the, the national level or, or uh, the state level. I'll give you an example just on the state level. When the majority party now puts up a bill that uh, is on final passage, they'll often have one person make a speech, probably the committee chairman. And then the opposing party speaks and speaks and speaks and speaks. Well, that's that's not how it's done. I think if you're putting up a bill, you should defend it. Get up there and say why it's so good for, for the state of Washington. And my role as president pro tem was to encourage debate, was to go from the opposition to the supportive side, back to the opposition, then to the supportive side. But we don't see that sometimes in Olympia. 
and and national politics man uh, you're talking you're seeing people get out of national politics but by the droves it is disappointing very disappointing so what do you tell the younger generation that's looking to public service what how do you inspire them in a time like this well get involved at the local level get get started uh, you know i i worked for the central area motivation council when i was going to school at the university of washington did a project with the, the minority community building a, uh, a music studio, for example. I worked with tribal members across the state. Get involved with something that you're not so familiar with and meet people. And then if you want to run for office, look at some of the, the jobs that are that are often uh, ignored. I started as a Port of Hoodsport commissioner. No one filed at 4.30 in the afternoon on a Friday. At that time, we had 52 feet of waterfront. But I got to know the Port Association. I got to know people at the Port of Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia. There's all kinds of of opportunities. Finally, the job of politics and the job of public policy is never-ending. The job just Mm -hmm. is continuous. Sure. What do you think you left on the table? Well, uh, I don't think that, you know, that I've I've failed in anything. Hopefully, I've... I've, uh, Inspired people to be to be more nonpartisan, to listen to the other side. I have a lot of friends that are Republican and Democrat. I think I hope with it, that I really I'd left behind just great memories of the people that work there and 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 serve. Just hopefully they can come to some more agreements. All right, Senator Tim Sheldon, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for your service and best of luck in your future endeavors. I appreciate your call. Thank you. When we come back, new developments in Seattle search for a police chief when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell has taken the city by storm, I guess you could say, to use an overused cliche. He has been cracking down on homeless encampments, a number of them, particularly those on sidewalks that pose a safety hazard or blocking public rights away, have been cleaned up. Similarly, he is continuing his search for a new police chief that's in all likelihood would oversee a lot of this. Joining me now is Matt Markovich. He is the political reporter for Fox 13 News here in Seattle. And we're starting to hear some rumblings that a decision might come relatively soon. Well, we've always known that he is going to have a nationwide search for a police chief. That is no big secret. But he just made it official this week that he's going nationwide to search for a replacement of what was Carmen Best's job, because we still have an interim chief for almost two years now with Adrian Diaz. He was named interim chief under Mayor Jenny Durkin and has held that title for, gosh, a year and a half now. Uh, And even going into the new Herald administration, he knew he'd have that job, but he also knew that he may be replaced. So this week, uh, Bruce Harrell made it official that there is a search. But again, it's been widely known that the search has been going on for quite quite some time and that uh, Mayor Harrell's told Chief Diaz or interim Chief Diaz that he can apply for the job. He told him that last year, even when he was running for mayor, he even told me during a, a campaign interview before the election that he wasn't quite satisfied with what Adrian Diaz had been doing up to that point. But then this week he said he's been doing a fine job 
and asked him to to go ahead and apply for the position. So when are we expecting a, a final decision? Because you'd think this is the the biggest hire he's going to make during his mm-hmm. first term, uh, assuming he runs for multiple terms uh, as the Seattle mayor. So why is it taking so long for a decision to be made? Well, I think he, he has to basically say, I'm going to do an official search, which he did this week. Now, privately, they've been looking. My understanding, they haven't publicly reached out to anybody of, of I'll say, of known stature, other than the own, the candidate that's in the office right now, in the job right now, Adrian Diaz. I think what you're seeing with Mayor Harrell is he kind of prefaces everything by, I've only been in the office for 30 days. I've only been in the office 60. I've only been in the office three months now, which is right now. And now he's saying, I'm going to launch an official search, and that's going to take some time. So with each announcement of his his time frame on a lot of things, he's He's saying, no, I'm inherited problems and I've only been in office so amount of time. So this is actually a way to actually buy some time and have this uh, search committee go out and interview people. Uh, But, you know, what things that changed from last time a police chief was nominated and, and appointed and approved by both the mayor and the city council was just the process. The process of selecting a chief now has to involve the city council. They have to be consulted on who he's talking to. And eventually the three candidates kind of have to be approved by the city council. Uh, and then the mayor will select that candidate who will be the finalist. And then the council has to approve that finalist. So the council is involved this time in the selection of a police chief more so than, than I can recall. And you have to know that with the activists that sit on the city Seattle City Council, that they are going to have a lot of input. They are going to have their voices be heard. And I would imagine that there are going to be some people that they don't approve of just for the sake of how the city council has been operating over the last few years. That could be the case, but I think you're going to have a tempered council now because of what's happened over the last two years with the defunding movement. And there's somewhat of a little backlash on on the defunding police by 50% and that never happening. And people kind of upset that that didn't want that to happen. And now, you know, I think the council obviously is going to have it say so in the police chief more, the selection of police chief more than ever. Um, But I think it's going to have a tempered approach. And what about Carmen Best? We knew she was uh, someone that Bruce Harrell was close to. He was considering her, but she is taking herself out of the running. She's got another jump. Yeah, she just accepted a position with Microsoft in terms of uh, their security officer for, I, I call it internal security officer for the company based here in obviously Redmond, Washington. So she has a new job. She was not selected to be the chief of police in New York or part of the police commission there. She was up for that job, but that didn't get that. And she's been doing speaking tours and engagements and and doing appearing on TV as a pundit on MSNBC, a paid pundit. So she's been out there, but now she's accepted this job with Microsoft. And yes, Bruce Hurl and her are friends, but also uh, Carmen Best is very good friends with Adrian Diaz. And so uh, you have a little triangle there where maybe one person's advising the other and and uh, and Adrian Diaz is a candidate. So and Adrian Diaz has made no bones about it. He would like that job. And he's been pushing real hard, being very public about his efforts, being very public about the shortage of officers, which has been a morale boost for this the rank and file. So he he may have been scoring some brownie points in the last year and a half. 
in the eyes of City Hall and maybe in the eyes of the most important person, Bruce Harrell, who will eventually decide who will become police chief. So bottom line, when do you think we're going to see a new person in that chief's office? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I think they have to, just like any selection process, have three viable candidates And we don't know when that's going to happen. And then there's a process after those three. So I really don't think it's going to be in the next couple of weeks. It could be quite some time. All right, Matt Markovich, political reporter for Fox 13 News in Seattle. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Jeff. We have to take another break. But when we come back, a seven and a half hour gap in the White House call logs during the January 6th insurrection. The legal implications for the former president when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, it is unclear who then-President Trump spoke to the day of the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Details on this from ABC's Jonathan Carl. The January 6th committee is looking into an hours-long gap in the official White House logs of Donald Trump's phone calls on the day his supporters attacked the Capitol. Washington Post and CBS are now reporting that gap was seven hours and 37 minutes. Seven hours and 37 minutes without any record of the president's calls. The logs do show several calls earlier that morning before the riot began, including one from Steve Bannon. The day before, Bannon had fired up Trump's supporters on his podcast. Despite the gap in the records, Trump has long been known to have several calls while the attack on the Capitol was underway, including uh, with House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. The reason for the gap in the records is not entirely clear, but when he was president, Trump frequently used a private cell phone, his own personal cell phone, and he also took calls frequently from the phones of his top aides. And that's ABC's chief White House correspondent. And Jonathan Carl joining us now on the Northwest Newsline is Aaron Blake. He is a reporter for the Washington Post who helped break this story. And this more than seven hour gap in the call logs, it's starting to sound eerily familiar to something that happened close to 50 years ago. Yeah, certainly this has been uh, uh, there's a parallel that's been drawn between this and that 18 and a half minute gap in the Nixon White House's call recordings. Those are call recordings, not the call logs. So it's a little bit different. But certainly this case is another instance in which the relevant period that has been excluded is a is a very convenient one uh, for the White House. This is the period that covers both before and during almost the entirety of the insurrection. And so there's long been a question about exactly who the president was talking to at that time. We know some of those things uh, because of public reporting and what members of Congress has said. But those calls don't show up in these logs, nor do any others for that seven and a half hour period between a little bit after 11 a.m. on January 6th and almost 7 p.m. on January 6th. Has Trump and his former White House staffers given any explanation for this camp? Uh, We have not um, heard a real detailed explanation. The one thing they did comment on most forcefully was the idea which was uh, is being investigated by the January 6th committee is the idea that they may have used so-called burner phones, you know, untraceable phones that aren't actually White House, um, official White House property uh, in hopes of not being detected. I think since then we have learned some things that uh, suggest maybe that wasn't the case, including a call that was placed to Senator Mike Lee and Senator Tommy Tuberville uh, during the insurrection that was apparently made from White House uh, equipment. Um, But certainly we're all having to piece this together and there are many more unanswered questions than answered ones at this point. So this lack of, of records, I mean, it, it kind of implies 
destruction or deletion or at least tampering of official evidence and, and official government documents. Yeah, there are, there are a few options here. I, I think one of them would be what I just referenced, which is, um, which is that they were using phones that weren't White House property and thus those calls weren't logged uh, like other calls were. Another would be just sloppiness. Uh, perhaps in the middle of an insurrection, people weren't taking the required notes uh, and, and things fell by the wayside. Uh, certainly, that would be a long period for that to be taking place. Uh, but certainly, that would be something that, that I'm sure the, the White House, the Trump White House, would, would suggest this is about. The last one would be some kind of tampering, uh, whether that's altering documents or uh, potentially changing something after the fact. Another possibility would be merely excluding a page of the call logs, which, uh, which what we have today, uh, what we see today, you can't really rule that out because the break actually takes place between pages rather in the middle of a, than in the middle, middle of a page. So um, I think that those are the three options here, some kind of uh, you know, other phones being used, sloppiness or uh, something more nefarious. If other phones were used, whether they were other phones of staffers, private phones, burner phones that has been suggested, wouldn't that in itself also be a problem? Uh, you certainly, the uh, there are rules as far as where, where business uh, the White House is conducting should be conducted. There are record-keeping rules. I think more than anything, though, either that or some kind of tampering with the records or alteration of the records would potentially be a legal liability. Um, oftentimes, when you're talking about those kinds of things, it can speak to a, a kind of a criminal intent uh, that you need to prove in these cases. And so to the extent things were being covered up in some fashion, that would help the case there. And this is also something that the January 6th committee is looking at. They are talking about potential crimes committed by the former president and, uh, and his allies. And they recently got a, a, a supportive ruling from a court on that front when a judge suggested that the president had more likely than not broken the law in some way. And so I, I think that's the real backdrop here. It's, it's certainly a matter of fascination about how this gap came about, but it also could be a matter of, of legal uh, import when it comes to exactly how this came about. We'll get to the legal issues in just a second, but this idea of using private cell phones, private burner phones for official business, this is something that Donald Trump railed against Hillary Clinton about with her email server in the 2016 campaign. There is a, a certain amount of irony here. Um, you know, the, the president, the former president talked frequently not just in 2016, but long afterwards, about uh, how the Clinton aides had destroyed a cell phone, um, uh, you know, as she was being investigated or before she was being investigated for her private server. Uh, this came up uh, in other contexts during the Mueller investigation when certain phones were wiped clean of data that the investigators were using. Uh, this was stuff that, that Donald Trump seized upon to argue that people had something to hide. Um, certainly in that context, using phones that were not traceable or even just uh, withholding uh, calls from this call log would, would suggest, according to the logic involved there, that there was something to be hidden. Uh, and I think that's also uh, an important point in all of this. To the legal implications of all of this, uh, the the most fervent investigation is with the House January 6th committee, which any committee in the House of Representatives or the Congress, for that matter, tends to be political in nature. But what are we seeing from the Justice Department? Uh, Justice Department keeps a very, um, a very tight lip on this kind of thing. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of indication that they are 
pursuing certain things. We basically have a handful of comments from the Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, affirming that they are looking at various things. But generally speaking, they will do whatever it takes to avoid looking like they're prejudging something or giving too much detail on what they're looking into. And I think that there is a real frustration among Democrats with that approach because, um, at least from their perspective, they don't see much action. Now, there are also good reasons why even they might not be familiar with that, because there are reasons to not even want members of Congress to potentially leak such details. And, and these could actually you know, involve members of Congress, not the Democrats necessarily, but Republicans. It just creates all sorts of circumstances in which they don't want to be talking about this really with anybody, not just publicly. And so um, that's the big unknown in all of this. Certainly, whatever the January 6th committee does would be geared toward a potential Justice Department investigation because the January 6th committee is not going to be in a position to charge anybody with a crime. And so that will maybe be the next shoe that would drop after we see uh, what the committee produces. But I'm guessing the committee is really kind of on a time crunch because you've got the midterms coming up. Everyone's going to go home to campaign and all signs point to Republicans taking over the House this fall. And if that happens, you'd imagine the January 6th committee is going to be dissolved. Yeah, there's no question that would be the case. And, and Republicans have um, have basically called this committee uh, illegitimate from the beginning. So the idea that they would continue it is just very far-fetched. I think the time crunch also has to do with with people's um, interest in this issue, too. We saw during the Russia investigation that people kind of lost interest over time. Investigations take a long time. It's difficult to build them. Uh, And sometimes the the best um, strategy for the people who are on the receiving end of the investigation is to draw the clock out and, and, and know that the political consequences are less likely to be so severe when people have tuned out of the situation to some degree. And certainly just anecdotally, I think we've seen that to some degree with the January 6th investigation. All right, Aaron Blake, he is a senior political reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. We have to take another break, but still to come, sex and politics, always a salacious combination, but throw in some cocaine and a 26-year-old congressman, now you've got a story. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, it's not often that we talk about, well, how shall we put it? Well, let's just put it this way. Orgies and cocaine. That is how it was described by a member of Congress. And this is the soundbite that is making the rounds. The sexual perversion that goes on in Washington. I mean, it, being kind of a young guy in Washington with the average age of probably 60 or 70, and I look at all these people, a lot of them that I, I, you know, I've looked up to through my life, I've always paid attention to politics, guys that, you know, it, then all of a sudden you get invited to, like, well, hey, we're going to have kind of a, a, a sexual get-together at one of our homes, you should come. And I'm like, what, what did you just ask me to come to? Yeah. And then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy. Yeah. Uh, or, or the fact that, you know, there's some of the people that are leading on the movement to try and remove, you know, addiction in our country. And then you watch them do, you know, keep up with cocaine right in front of you. This is this is wild. That is Congressman Madison Cawthorn, Republican of North Carolina, on the Warrior Poets Society podcast earlier this week. His comments have stirred quite the controversy within the GOP. Joining us now is Anthony Adragna. He is a reporter with Politico. And, well, the first thing that I have noticed about the reaction to Mr. Cawthorn's comments is... No one has really flatly denied it. They've told him to name names, put up or shut up, but they haven't said, no, this isn't true. The weirdest part of all this is that 
there's not been consensus about these comments. So House Minority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy said basically he saw Madison Cawthorn after he made these comments earlier this week. And he said basically Cawthorn admitted they weren't true. Cawthorn has not gone so far as to say that publicly. So we're all left in kind of a bit of a muddle. Uh, It seems like he's at the very least grossly exaggerated uh, some of these claims, but he's not completely retracted them yet. Well, Madison Cawthorn is is no stranger to controversial comments. He is sort of a, a firebrand, and as a, a young freshman in Congress, he, that's how he's made a name for himself. Absolutely. I mean, he's 26. Um, most recently, he was in the news for calling uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky a thug and saying that his government was corrupt, which is really out of line with pretty much everybody, including most Republicans. Uh, this is somebody who's uh, no doubt uh, made most of his headlines through controversial comments, incendiary comments. But I think this week's comments are most notable because he went after his own party. And I think that's why you've seen the backlash that you have and why many of the Republicans are, uh, you know, not just willing to sort of turn the other cheek about them. It takes a lot for someone in, in a political party, whether it's the GOP or the Democrats, to really turn on one of their own, but in particular for the GOP in the Trump era, you have to really step out of line. And, and this seems to be the first one we've seen in a while. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's what a lot of people have pointed out. You know, we, we saw uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar speak at a, literally at a white nationalist conference about a month ago. And uh, Kevin McCarthy, the, the leader of the Republicans, said basically he talked with them uh, we didn't really see any public uh, follow-up on, on that commitment. But this week, you know, we saw Cawthorn get a talking to immediately. And I think that speaks to the fact that, um, you know, lawmakers really don't like to see themselves embarrassed <laughs> publicly, certainly by uh, allegations that are at best uh, unproven. And I, I think that's part of what's triggered the backlash that we've seen. It's been swift and uh, you know, Cawthorn met with McCarthy earlier this week. McCarthy said that Cawthorn had lost his confidence, which is more than we've seen with a lot of other members of his conference who've uh, made controversial remarks or appeared at controversial events um, throughout this, this last couple of years. One of the things that leadership in the in the political parties tends to do if someone steps out of line is remove them from their committee assignments. Have we seen any movement with regards to Cawthorn in that regard? Yeah, we've not seen that yet. Um, Leader McCarthy did not rule that out earlier this week. Um, I'd be a little bit surprised um, if he ultimately took that step. Um, it's you know something he's done very, relatively reluctantly before, but there's no question that Republican leadership is not happy about these comments certainly intends to ensure that Cawthorn's not (laughs) running his mouth kind of as he seemed to have been doing um, without any sort of consequences uh, up until this point. Do we know if there's any shred or inkling of truth in Cawthorn's comments? What I would say is we've not seen any indication of any sort of corroboration of these claims. And Leader McCarthy said uh, after meeting with Cawthorn that um, basically he recanted on a lot of this and said basically it had been exaggerated. He said that the the comments about cocaine uses were actually, you know, it was maybe one aide 100 yards away in a parking garage, um, which if if that's true, he has better vision than I do. Um, But (laughs) certainly um, we've not seen any corroboration. And this is the sort of thing I've been covering politics in Washington for a long time. If this was common practice or something that happened routinely, you certainly I would think you'd hear rumors of it, and it's not anything I've heard. 
uh, rumors about during my time covering politics here. So what would be the point of Cawthorn doing this, just to continue that brand of saying outrageous things? I can't imagine that would help him in a GOP primary, let alone a general election. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> I don't know that I, I have the uh, the insight as to what might be driving that. Um, you know, Cawthorn is he's 26. He's really, really young. That's about the outer limit of how young you can be and uh, be in Congress. And you just have to kind of wonder at some point if, uh, you know, he's gotten a lot of national attention, um, a lot of uh, fame uh, quickly. And you, you sort of wonder if uh, maybe he that allowed him to uh, uh, feel like he's able to kind of just wax poetic about some of these things that maybe he shouldn't. Have we seen in the past, you know, some of the controversial comments he said that he, he's retracted? We, we As you reported that Kevin McCarthy said he retracted the statements in a closed-door meeting, but he hasn't done so publicly. No, that's correct. And in fact, quite, quite to the contrary, he put out an ad that basically doubled down and said that he's under attack by the far left. I note here that uh, much of the criticism has been from within his own party. But he's, you know, he put out an ad saying he's under attack from the far left and uh, quite defiant in, in light of everything that's gone down this week. So, yeah, Cawthorn does not seem bad by any of this criticism. He didn't seem particularly affected by the criticism after the comments he made about um, Ukrainian President Zelensky either. So we'll have to see. You know, it's it's quite a different thing when the leader of your, your party, uh, Kevin McCarthy in this case, said that he's lost confidence in you. That's not something that is said quite frequently. Uh, but we'll see if that affects how he handles his, his media engagements going forward. And this is an election year. We're gearing up for the 2022 midterms. Do we know how this is playing in his district in North Carolina? The race in his district has been really interesting. He originally had shifted to a district further to the east in his state. Then the maps were redone and that district was no longer going to be very Republican friendly. So Cawthorn has actually shifted back to his original district, which is located in western North Carolina. He's got a number of notable uh, primary opponents, including a state senator, Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina, who really doesn't tend to stick his neck out for much of these things. But he actually endorsed the, the primary opponent of Cawthorn and throughout the week has basically said, you know, he hasn't delivered for the state. He's been kind of an embarrassment. So I think this is one to watch. And um, there's no question that Cawthorn is facing credible primary opponents. You never like to bet against the incumbents in these situations. But there's no question that he's facing really credible challenges. Uh, and we'll see if these comments come back to bite him. And you can imagine that the uh, Republican National Campaign Committee is, is happy with these comments when they're trying to paint a picture of the party and take over the House in the midterms. Absolutely. I mean, th there's no question that comments like this from, from Cawthorn, those from Marjorie Taylor Greene, and, and some of these other firebrands from within the House Republican ranks detract from what they're trying to push nationally, which is, you know, the Biden administration uh, has failed to combat, you know, high prices, inflation, uh, the war in Ukraine. And, and so really, this is whenever these comments are made, um, whatever flavor of the week they take, they do distract from uh, the broader Republican message and draw attention to the parts of the party that leadership would like to de-emphasize. All right, Anthony Adragna, he's a reporter with Politico. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. Still to come, the crossroads of politics and sports for both Washington and the world. 
when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, Governor Inslee has signed the last batch of bills passed by state lawmakers in the 2022 session. And Washington State now has a first-of-its-kind alert system for missing Indigenous people. Now, this is very similar to an Amber Alert, as information about missing Native Americans, particularly women, would be displayed on roadside reader boards and broadcast on highway advisory radio. This bill encourages law enforcement agencies to help recover effort, recovery efforts and brings more public attention to this important issue. Indigenous women comprise a disproportionate number of missing people compared to their white counterparts. The new system hopes to change that. Also coming from lawmakers this year, Washington now has an official state sport. Of course, we're known for many things such as apples, evergreens, mountains, the sound, and now pickleball. Governor Inslee signed legislation to make pickleball the official state sport earlier this week. We know that pickleball is a great sport for all ages and all abil- abilities. And by the way, it's the greatest bonding activity yes. between grandparents and grandchildren yet invented. Pickleball, which is something akin to maybe tennis or badminton, joins a long list of official state things. Palouse Falls is the state waterfall, the Colombian mammoth as the state fossil, and the Olympic marmot as the state animal. Pickleball was invented here in Washington State. And finally, the United States has gotten its draw for the World Cup later this year, and the Americans will face some geopolitical allies and enemies. After qualifying for the World Cup for the first time in eight years this week, the United States, the number 15 soccer club in the world, has now been drawn to Group B in Qatar this November. They'll face England, ranked number five, on November 25th, and Iran, the 21st ranked nation, on November 29th. But the Americans' first opponent is still up in the air. Wales will face either Scotland or Ukraine in a June playoff to see who goes to the 2022 World Cup. Both Ukraine defending its country from Russia, the first leg of that playoff has been postponed. I'm Jack Cronin. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogel, thank you for listening, and have a good week.